Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, and you can check out all of my written work there. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcast called The Quipster Film Review Podcast, where you look at brand new movies that are out in theaters, VOD, streaming services. Not as many to speak of in 2020, which is why it's been... A bit of slow going, but you can check out my reviews for many of the films that came out in the last four to five years by clicking the link to that at quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the next three-part series. I just covered The Abyss, so I'm going to continue on that role by looking at films from the 1980s, although this one I'm going to be reviewing today is from the 1970s, but it influenced many of these films that came out in the 1980s, so I thought I would start out with Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and that will kick off this three-part series looking at films featuring Close Encounters with Benevolent Aliens. Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out in 1977. It is a PG-rated film, and that's because of some language. The runtime, well, it depends on which version you're watching. The theatrical cut was two hours and 15 minutes. The special edition that came out in 1980 was three minutes less than that, and the Collector's Edition DVD that came out in the late 1990s was two hours and 17 minutes. Richard Dreyfuss, Francois Truffaut, Terry Garr, Melinda Dillon, Carrie Guffey, and Bob Balaban are in the cast. Steven Spielberg is the director and also the sole credited screenwriter, even though many other writers did work on it, and I will get into who those people are and why they were not credited in the body of this review. Now, if you know Steven Spielberg, you know that he's kind of synonymous with these kinds of alien films, although he has a very varied career. But he has a longtime fascination with UFOs, many years even before Close Encounters of the Third Kind. As a teenager, when he was in Scottsdale, Arizona, he made this two-hour and 15-minute film. It was not Close Encounters, but basically a forerunner. It was an 8-millimeter feature called Firelight. It only cost him $400 to produce this film, and it was basically this homage to 1950s UFO flicks. The plot of the film involved scientists witnessing these strange lights in the Arizona skies that reveal themselves to be spaceships that contain alien monsters who are abducting people and dogs. Spielberg used his high school theater group as well as his sisters to act in the film. His high school band played the score that he himself composed. And before moving to California, Steven Spielberg's father rented a movie theater in Phoenix, as well as a limousine and a searchlight and concessions. I mean, you name it. They charged a dollar a seat to come attend Firelight. And that became Steven Spielberg's first profitable film, although a very modest profit, maybe about $100. Flash forward a few years to 1970. Steven Spielberg, he was a director for television at the time, but he dabbled in writing short stories. And he wrote one called Experiences. And he was inspired by witnessing a meteor shower when he was a kid. And this event really sparked this story that concerned Midwestern teenagers, Spielberg originally from the Midwest, Cincinnati area, and they're necking on Lover's Lane and they stop to observe these light shows that are appearing in the sky, presumably UFOs. He itched to make a UFO movie somehow, but science fiction was not really selling in the early 1970s. So Spielberg contemplating making maybe a documentary that would involve interviewing people who claimed abduction by UFOs, but he did prefer the narrative format if he was able to get the budget to do it. 
Meanwhile, Spielberg was bouncing ideas off of his filmmaking friends. He had one involving a spaceship landing in Hollywood, and he told his screenwriting friends Willard Huck and Gloria Katz. They dismissed that idea as pretty silly. Science fiction was really unmarketable in those days, so they didn't think that he should waste his time doing that. He did go back to the drawing board somewhat. So he was going to repackage these ideas for UFOs into a political thriller. He was inspired by this 1972 book called The UFO Experience, A Scientific Inquiry. It was written by Northwestern University astronomer J. Allen Hynek. And Hynek was a longtime consultant to the U.S. Air Force about UFOs for Project Blue Book. And he resigned after he started getting the feeling that the Air Force really was systematically disregarding eyewitness accounts of UFOs that really could not be explained, and they merited further investigation, but they were not allowed to. So, inspired by Watergate, Spielberg, he devised a plot for his narrative involving an Air Force UFO debunker that discovers there's a widespread government cover-up of alien existence on Earth. Alan Ladd Jr., he happened to be a friend of Spielberg, and he was also an executive at 20th Century Fox, He liked Spielberg's new idea, but he did advise him that he needed more clout to sell it to a studio. So before Spielberg completed his first feature film for theaters, The Sugarland Express, in 1973, he became friends with Michael and Julia Phillips. They were the producers of another Zanuck Brown film called The Sting. The Sting would go on to win the Academy Award for Best Picture that year, and Julia Phillips, the first female producer to win such an award, and they had the clout that he needed. So he pitched his film idea called Watch the Skies. The title was derived from the final lines of 1951's The Thing from Another World. They liked his idea, so they agreed on terms, and then the Phillipses assigned the screenplay to Paul Schrader, who was also working with them for Taxi Driver. Now, Fox and Alan Ladd did not want Paul Schrader to be the screenwriter. They thought he was too expensive as well as a bad fit for this kind of material. So they wanted to stick with Schrader. So they shopped around to other studios and they eventually landed at Columbia Pictures. So while Schrader was working on the screenplay, Spielberg went on to make Jaws in the interim. Schrader, he based his Air Force UFO debunker, Paul Van Owen, on Hynek himself. Paul experiences a UFO, he becomes a believer, and then he joins with this secret government organization of UFO devotees who fund his research to try to contact those aliens. He spends several decades looking for aliens before realizing that the communication that he's trying to do is not really physical. These aliens, this UFO, resided in his elevated consciousness. And the story ends with Paul getting brain implants to psychically connect with these aliens. And then they land their spaceship at a designated location and pick him up and take him off into outer space. As a very simplistic reading of this very complicated material, Schrader modeled Paul's conversion here to that of St. Paul. St. Paul, of course, the story from the Bible, he persecuted Christians before he became a follower of Christ himself. Initially, Schrader retitled his screenplay Kingdom Come, and later he landed on a different title called Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and that came from Heineck himself, a classification system he came up with for Close Encounters. That means within 500 feet of a UFO. The first kind of encounter was seeing a UFO, the second kind left physical evidence, and the third kind was observing the UFO inhabitants or communicating with them. Spielberg liked the Close Encounters of the Third Kind title, but not Schrader's talky, embarrassingly ponderous script or its unsympathetic protagonist. So Spielberg determined 
that a uniformed saint-like figure was not really as relatable for audiences as would be a Midwestern suburbanite. Schrader scoffed at this idea. He thought that a McDonald's-eating schlub representing the human race to interplanetary civilizations was a dumb idea, so they mutually determined that their visions did not mesh, and Schrader moved on to do Taxi Driver for the Phillipses while they hired another screenwriter named John Hill. Hill, he broke up a lot of the aspects of this Paul Van Owen character. He took away a lot of that religious symbolism, and he made several different characters out of that protagonist, and he emphasized much more political thriller elements for the tone of the film. Now, during downtime on making Jaws, Spielberg brainstormed with production designer Joe Alves on ideas that they could come up with for Close Encounters. Spielberg envisioned a mountain finale. He was thinking specifically of Fantasia's Night on Bald Mountain sequence. They procured a book on western U.S. mountains, and Alves traveled to the top prospects that they picked out. He took a lot of pictures, and Spielberg turned down what they considered to be the top candidate of Oregon's Ship Rock, and also Monument Valley. He thought John Ford really owned that territory. So during this period, Jaws screenwriter Carl Gottlieb, he happened to be in their presence when they were discussing this, and he recommended checking out Devil's Tower National Monument in Gillette, Wyoming. And they did, and that became the perfect place for their ending. Now, experiencing too many financial flops, Columbia Pictures did some market research on the UFO concept at the time, and they found that there was really little appetite for it. So they would only budget $2.8 million for Spielberg's film, not nearly enough in his mind. So he was just beginning to enter the post-production phase on Jaws, so he thought he should immediately seek a different project. And one emerged, an adaptation of William Brashler's novel called The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, and that was written by Sugarland Express's Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins, friends of his he wanted to reunite with. But... After Jaws' production ran a little too long, the makers of Bingo Long went with John Badham instead. They could not wait because they wanted to keep James Earl Jones on board. Now, when Jaws became the highest grossing film of all time, of course, that time was the right time to make his UFO film. So Columbia, they were eager to be the next studio to work with Steven Spielberg. They eagerly gave him whatever money he needed. Now, John Hill's revision, when it was all done, it was too much Watergate not enough UFO. So Spielberg decided to write the screenplay himself. However, he was much more of an ideas man than he was a wordsmith. So the Phillipses brought in some professional assistants. David Geiler came in and he fixed some of the plot elements. Barwood and Robbins introduced a child abduction subplot for their artist character to give some rationale for her seeing things through. And Jerry Belson was brought in to rewrite the characterizations specifically for the actors that they were bringing on board and to spruce up a lot of the humor. Now, Spielberg wanted sole credit to avoid denial of authorship. Schrader withdrew from the Writers Guild arbitration after Julia Phillips said nothing of his work remained in the current script that they were going with, and that was a move that eventually cost Schrader millions in his profit percentage deal. He later felt misled because he discovered that they still had a lot of elements that he had come up with. Several key plot and character elements like the spiritual parallels, the use of colors to communicate, the protagonist creating something embedded in his mind in a physical sense, this government hoax to try to clear an area for the eventual UFO landing, and the protagonist's exodus into space. Spielberg, of course, said Schrader was taking too much credit for ideas that he himself came up with. Spielberg's filmmaking philosophy did mature during this period. Instead of exciting audiences, he wanted to inspire them. He wanted to leave them, as well as himself, feeling good inside. 
His prior films emphasized thrills, but now he wanted to seek discovery and wonder. UFO films often featured aliens shooting ray guns, and they were very action and sometimes horror-tinged, but Spielberg's film was going to be different. It was going to be a sociological examination of human beings discovering that they are not alone in the universe. Now, Hynek wrote to the producers during this period that their title, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, was taken from a phrase that he coined and he would have preferred being informed personally rather than have to learn it from reading a magazine. Now, Spielberg called Hynek. He told him he was going to change the title back to Watch the Skies if he wanted to, but he was willing to hire him on as a technical advisor to make sure that the story was going to stay plausible in his mind. Now, Columbia, during this period, they did buy the rights to Hynek's book, so they did use Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Hynek was additionally granted an honorarium as well as a cameo appearance in the film. Spielberg viewed Close Encounters as more of a science speculation story than science fiction. Depictions came from first-hand accounts from people who encountered UFOs, at least they claimed to. A Gallup poll during this period revealed that 11% of Americans claimed to have witnessed a UFO, and 51% believed that they did exist. President Jimmy Carter himself, he had reported seeing UFOs on two separate occasions in the past, So not exactly people who are whacked out on drugs or just plain weirdos. There were a lot of legitimate people, including the president of the United States, that had claimed to have seen a UFO. Spielberg interviewed airline personnel. He interviewed scientists, housewives, many others for their UFO experiences. The armed forces, though, and NASA, they refused to cooperate. They claimed that UFOs were complete fiction. And Spielberg's film was going to encourage a lot more government dissent. Now, Spielberg noted that the eyewitnesses described aliens as benevolent beings. They were not monsters shooting radioactive death rays. Almost all of them involved aliens either observing or communicating with people, not necessarily terrorizing them. Now, Spielberg happens to be an agnostic on whether extraterrestrials are monitoring Earth. He does believe that there is other intelligent life somewhere out there in the universe, but he also believes that the government is hiding information that they have from the public. So his film is going to take the approach of opening the minds of people to the infinite possibilities of the universe. We are not alone, and this film would use the wealth of evidence that exists, these eyewitness accounts that we have on hand, to make the case that the government has been denying their existence all along. Spielberg, he grew up in the Midwest, in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was two hours' drive from Muncie, Indiana. That was where he was going to set Close Encounters. He felt that Muncie represented Middletown, USA. It was not too far east, not too far west, and it was important to show Midwest suburbia for the purpose of this film, because people there... They were not the New Age types, the coastal types who believed in cosmic occurrences. These were very grounded people who would not necessarily take to believing anything presented in front of their eyes. They were going to be questioning. The town of Muncie, though, they did not want disruption from this big Hollywood production in their town, so Spielberg had to shoot elsewhere. Due to the difficulties of making Jaws, Spielberg, he wanted the biggest indoor facility that was available because he wanted to control the environment. He didn't want any unnecessary delays due to weather or any other unforeseen events. Now, Joe Alves, he went out all across the country to find the biggest indoor space that he could, and he found a collection of dormant World War II dirigible hangars at this defunct Air Force base near Mobile, Alabama. The largest of the hangars was four times larger than any soundstage at MGM or Chinachita. They would use this to recreate Indiana at night. There was another hangar that they used to house smaller sets. The sweltering Alabama, he did contribute somewhat to some discomfort there. It was very humid, and there were a lot of powerful studio lights inside this facility, and that required a massive air conditioning installation to endure. 
As far as the main star, Spielberg had a couple of people in mind. One was Jack Nicholson and the other one Steve McQueen. Nicholson was not interested in any kind of film where he was going to take a backseat to the effects. And McQueen said that he really could not cry on cue. Spielberg was willing to work with him, but McQueen thought he should keep all of those emotional moments in for the purpose of making a good film. Initially dismissed as too young, Richard Dreyfuss, he lobbied for the role. He'd worked with Spielberg before, and he wanted to do it again. He convinced Spielberg that he did not need a seasoned hero for his story. The part should be childlike. And in every man who was going to pursue his dreams, he was going to leave his family behind. And what better person than an immature goof like he could provide? However, he wanted a half million dollars and 5% of the gross, and Julia Phillips did not want to give that to him. If she was going to spend that kind of money, she was going to get a bankable star like Gene Hackman or Dustin Hoffman or Al Pacino. By the way, they all declined. James Caan did say he would look at the film, but he required double what Dreyfus was asking for, so Phillips negotiated with Dreyfus. She was going to give him the money, but none of that gross percentage. He was not going to be making more than her or Spielberg. He said that was pretty fair, and he signed on. Dreyfus here, he stars as the Muncie, Indiana electricity lineman, Roy Neary. He was one of many people in the world to experience a close encounter with a UFO. Others happen to be experiencing the same phenomenon. They're exhibiting the same odd behavior, radiation burns, an obsession with his mountainous shape. Roy's obsession strains his relationship with his family. They all think he's mentally ill, cracking up. And the eyewitnesses all are encountering their own problems with their families and all of their friends. They're compelled, though, to converge to this location where the U.S. military is also happening to be planning for a close encounter of the third kind with aliens. That's a very simplistic read on this film, but I definitely think if you haven't seen it by now, you should definitely see it. Now, Amy Irving read for the part of Roy's wife. She was 22 at the time. She was considered immediately too young for Roy, but she was not too young for Spielberg. Within a month after that reading, she began dating and eventually moving in with Steven Spielberg. Now, for that role, Spielberg spotted Terry Garr. She was playing a housewife on a coffee commercial, and he felt immediately that she was going to be perfect for Roy's wife and brought her in and eventually hired her over the likes of other soon-to-be-famous-anyway actresses like Meryl Streep. She was considered too intimidating. Terry Garr wanted to play the Jillian role, the artist role, but Spielberg opted instead for stage actress Melinda Dillon. She was a last-minute hire that was recommended by friend of his, director Hal Ashby. Dillon went on to receive an Oscar nomination for her performance in this film. Inspired by Hynek's French colleague Jacques Vallée, Spielberg modeled another character, Claude Lacombe, after French director Francois Truffaut's character in The Wild Child, named Dr. Etard, a kindly doctor who has to communicate with somebody who does not understand human language. Very perfect for this kind of film. Top-tier French actors that they were looking at, they were too pricey, so he mustered up the nerve to ask Truffaut himself to play the part. After reading the French-translated portions of the script, Truffaut, he gave a conditional approval. He wanted his dialogue, though, to remain in French. He didn't know that much English, and he needed time to finish his screenplay to The Man Who Loved Women. Spielberg and Julia Phillips did accept his requests. Spielberg also created Bob Balaban's cartographer character. He was going to know French and he was going to translate what Claude Lacombe said. The bilingual Balaban also served as Truffaut's off-camera chaperone because he was really the only other person besides Truffaut's translator that knew enough French. 
Now, Truffaut, he had never acted for another director. He appeared sometimes in his own films. He considered writing a book on acting, so he felt that this was going to offer an immediate experience in a Hollywood production. Very valuable, although unlike professional actors, he did need to write some of his dialogue on note cards or cue cards around the set to deliver his lines. He couldn't quite remember them, as well as seasoned actors. He took the approach of unquestionably doing whatever Spielberg asked, just like a normal actor would, or making directorial suggestions, even if Spielberg asked him to do that. He initially considered Spielberg's directorial instincts as a bit naive, but after he screened the final film, he did realize Spielberg had a lot of skillfulness, especially in blending everyday life with fantasy and vice versa. Truffaut did hate the disorganized production. He publicly blamed Julia Phillips for incompetence and unprofessionalism. The feeling was kind of mutual. Phillips did find Truffaut arrogant and deliberately obstructive, and she claimed that he seemed to amuse himself by pretending to be deaf in one ear and to not understand any English when she was talking with him. Due to Julia's drug issues and cost overruns and general disruptive behavior, Michael Phillips, her estranged and pretty much divorced now husband, took over after Columbia banned her from the premises. After hundreds of auditions, Spielberg selected four-year-old Carrie Guffey for the young boy in the film, Barry. He earned the nickname of One Take Carrie because his first take was the truest. Spielberg observed Guffey's emotional triggers and he manipulated his performance Within the moment, makeup artist Rob Westmoreland or himself or another member of the cast, they would dress up in various disguises like the Easter Bunny or a clown or a gorilla, and they would film his reaction to match whatever they wanted in the script to get him to look surprised or curious or scared, and to get him to smile, Spielberg would slowly unwrap a present full of toys, and to evoke tears for his final shot, Spielberg kind of meanly, I guess, told Carrie that the movie was done and he was never going to see any of them again. Spielberg knew that the production was going to take some time. Other studios, other TV networks, they were going to rush to make cheap knockoffs in anticipation of this phenomenon. To avoid dampening enthusiasm, the production was top secret. They had security guards to guard the set. They required photo IDs for access to the set. Spielberg one time briefly was barred for forgetting his. The principal actors could not publicly discuss any of the plot details, and many of them were only given the portions that they directly were responsible for, so they didn't know the full plot details. Most of them didn't anyway. Now, in his Winnebago at night, Spielberg would watch a lot of movies, especially 2001 A Space Odyssey. He mixed that up with some cartoons. He felt that all of that was going to birth fresh ideas, and he would change a lot of his story and script ideas for the next day shoot. Spielberg did borrow Kubrick's aesthetic from 2001 somewhat, but not his nihilism. Spielberg regarded other life in the universe, unlike Kubrick, as a positive and emotionally satisfying possibility. Keeping with the Kubrick connection, 2001's Douglas Trumbull and his special effects company, Future General, they handled the visual effects after Steven Spielberg and George Jensen designed the basic concepts. Spielberg wavered on showing the Carlo Rambaldi-designed aliens before concluding that audience anticipation necessitated their inclusion. Humans feared the unknown. Seeing these aliens reduces their fearsomeness. Spielberg liked that Rambaldi did his work on time and under budget, and he would hire him again a few years later for E.T., the extraterrestrial. Sugarland Express's cinematographer Vilmos Zygmunt, he reunited here with Spielberg. Columbia nixed his involvement for some of the additional scenes that explored UFOs as a worldwide phenomenon, so they had a mix of different cinematographers in addition to Zygmunt. They hired William Fraker for the Mojave Desert, as well as the alien scenes toward the end. Douglas Slocum for India, Stephen Poster, John Alonzo, and Laszlo Kovacs shot some of the retakes. 
Now, Verna Fields, she was Jaws's editor, and she became VP at Universal Pictures in the interim. She was set to associate produce Close Encounters, but Spielberg felt she received too much credit for Jaws's success. He didn't want a repeat to happen on this film as well. So in the meantime, Fields did introduce Spielberg to another editor named Michael Kahn. Spielberg admired Kahn's prior work, plus he was a fellow Eagle Scout, so Kahn joined on board, and he happened to become Spielberg's editor for every subsequent film he did, but E.T. He was too busy doing Poltergeist at that time. Spielberg considered Close Encounters much more challenging to make than Jaws because of its emotional themes. He emphasized music to connect with aliens instead of random beeps or squeaks because he felt that music connects humans of many different languages and different cultures. So it would naturally be used to connect with this other culture from another part of the galaxy or universe. Now for the famous note sequence that is used in this film, the motif for using notes to communicate, John Williams suggested using seven notes, maybe when you wish upon a star. Spielberg, though, he only wanted five because seven would be more like a melody. He wanted it more like a mathematical communication. So John Williams started playing hundreds of combinations of five notes before he and Spielberg picked just the right one. Spielberg liked the one that they chose because the last note raised as if it was expecting a response and would foster communication. The accompanying Zoltan Kotali gestures used to teach kids music through hand signs. They also feature in the film Lacombe uses them. That's an homage to 19th century Russian composer Scriabin, who attached color codes to music. John Williams composed here a very Bernard Herman-esque score to differentiate it from Jaws. He says this is the closest he's done in any score in any film to his personal compositional style, by the way. Williams would go on to get nominated for an Oscar, but he would lose it to himself for Star Wars. He did, though, win a Grammy for Best Score Soundtrack for Close Encounters. Al's first mothership design, it was a monolithic black wedge at Spielberg's request. It was very much similar to 2001 A Space Odyssey. It blocked all the stars in the sky when it flew overhead. Spielberg, though, did change his opinion on this after he saw an oil refinery in Bombay that had pipes and tubes all over the place, blanketed by lights. A spectacular sight. He returned home to Los Angeles and he did a handstand on the hood of his car and he observed the lights of the San Fernando Valley upside down. And so he combined those two spectacular views, these ideas, into a new mothership design. The top half very similar to that oil refinery and the bottom half to the lights of Los Angeles at night. Now, because Steven Spielberg's parents only permitted G-rated films, he considered Walt Disney his biggest influence more than any other filmmaker. Spielberg, as a result, wanted When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio to open the film. Makes no difference who you are. That was a key theme here in this film because he was going for that everyman vibe. Spielberg, though, reconsidered the placement, though. He would put it at the end as the hero departs as kind of the capper, the coat hanger on which everything hung. However, an October preview in Dallas found that the song confused a lot of the viewing audience there. Some of them believed that everything that they had seen before was a dream. And he definitely didn't want that. This was going to be much more of a literal-minded movie. He wanted to stay within the realm of plausibility. Now, one prominent film critic snuck into that preview, and he reviewed that preview cut, and he proclaimed in his review, Close Encounters was going to be a major flop. So Columbia's stock plummeted. And with bankruptcy looming, Columbia had Spielberg remove the song, along with seven and a half minutes of other material, that they considered to be lagging on the film, and they had him add additional scenes to make Neri's actions and Lacombe's subplot easier for the audience to understand. So, 
After this, Columbia received pressure from nervous exhibitors. They wanted to have limited engagements out by mid-November to build hype for its eventual December wide release. Spielberg was not happy because he wanted more time to complete his film to his satisfaction. He felt it was just not ready quite yet. He wanted to tinker around with a lot of the elements he felt still were not working for him. The $8 million budget during this time, it ballooned all the way up by the end of the film to about $20 million. And this was going to be a huge gamble for a studio that was on the brink. Filmmaker John Milius, he quipped that Close Encounters was either going to be the best Columbia picture or it was going to be its last It was not its last. Riding on the Star Wars thirst for sci-fi and a mass marketing blitz, Close Encounters of the Third Kind scored $114 million in the United States and did even better internationally, and it had a grand total of near $300 million when it was all said and done. It earned eight Oscar nominations, including Spielberg's very first for Best Director. It won for Zygmunt's cinematography, despite a half dozen other cinematographers working on the film, and it did win a Special Achievement Award on top of that for sound effects editing. Some theologians viewed Close Encounters a lot differently than general audiences. They saw this as a quasi-religious tale about faith. Even though they removed a lot of that from Schrader's original, they felt it was still there. People around the world here sharing a belief system filled with symbols that point to something more out there. And by traveling the road to redemption, it becomes their salvation. It's a rapture metaphor with illuminated people exhibiting a divine calling to ascend with benevolent beings into the great beyond. Spielberg's UFO Odyssey here, it's a cinematic spectacle. It's worth the price of admission just to see it. It has gorgeous special effects, beautiful music, passionate acting, inspired direction. There's some cutesy Spielbergisms here, as you know, in most of his films, but it does remain a very thoughtful, very captivating fare for all ages. Although it is technically marvelous, I think ultimately Close Encounters works because of the characterizations and the desire of the characters to solve mysteries in their own behavior. Dreyfus's performance here as a man plagued with newfound quirks provides the backbone to make this very fanciful premise soar. Terry Gar excels as Neri's long-suffering wife, hoping for her husband's normalcy to return. The child actors here are also very believable. They exhibit natural curiosity to bizarre events within the story. This was really the first film for Spielberg that utilized child actors in main performances. You know, Jaws had a couple, but they had to carry whole scenes in this film, and they do it quite well despite a lack of experience. And future efforts, I think, have not captured how children behave as well as they do here in Spielberg's Close Encounters. This film proved Spielberg after Jaws was no one-trick pony. This was an ambitious effort that could have backfired in anyone else's hands. It's very thought-provoking, it's challenging, it's vastly entertaining for science fiction junkies especially, and even for those who normally eschew these kinds of films. The humanity of the story might take a backseat to the technical aspects, but I do think this is as fine a lyrical take on the beauty of space and its seemingly magical possibilities as there has been in cinema since Kubrick's 2001. And that's why I'm going to give Close Encounters of the Third Kind four stars out of four. Four stars on my scale means that I do recommend it to everybody. If you have not seen it, I definitely think this is a must-see entertainment. If you're at all going to be interested in films of the 1980s, it was very influential, and you'll see why as I get into the next couple of films. And it definitely does hold up to this day, although there are a couple of other versions out there. 
After its theatrical run, Steven Spielberg, who was never quite happy with having to rush his film out prematurely, he asked Columbia for money to complete his film for subsequent re-releases because re-releases of big films were common. So they approved $2 million more for new scenes, including one that showed the mothership's interior. Spielberg did not necessarily want it, but they felt that that was going to be a reason for people to want to come back. So the 1980 special edition re-release, it made... $15.7 million for its $2 million investment. Spielberg recut the film again sometime quite a bit later for a 1998 collector's edition DVD. He removed that mothership interior scene he felt never really worked, and he rearranged and tightened other scenes. And both revisions, by the way, reinstate his original intent of putting in When You Wish Upon a Star at the end. The whole reason, his inspiration for making this film from a long time ago. So four stars out of four. As far as what I'm going to be doing next week, well, why not continue with another benevolent close encounter with an alien, with another Spielberg film that very much came into being because Steven Spielberg wanted to create a sequel for Close Encounters that didn't quite work out the way that he wanted, but it did finally morph in one way or another, for reasons I'll get into next week, into E.T., the extraterrestrial in 1982 and that will be the next film that i review here on around the world in 80s movies so if you have not seen that film in a long time i do definitely recommend that you check that out for next episode's review et the extraterrestrial from 1982 thank you everyone for listening i hope that you enjoyed this review if you have your own thoughts on close encounters of the third kind or something i didn't get into that you want to discuss you can find my contact information at my website that's at quipster.net q-w-i-p-s-t-e-r.net links to my twitter feed facebook page instagram are all there any of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me and until next time thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in the mothership in 80s movies. Mm-hmm.